welcome to another episode of Green and Gritty. We are four master's students trying to make environmental education a little more accessible. We are so excited that you joined us today in our little corner of the internet. So stick around, this is going to be a fun episode. Greetings, everyone. I hope we are all starting to enjoy the warmer weather. And of course, I'm a fan of the rain that's been happening lately, too. But I mentioned the weather not for some small talk, but to instead open this week's episode. <laughs> uh, we wanted to break down some interesting topics pertaining to the conservation versus preservation of environmental spaces. Uh, Green and Gritty has been inspired by what we saw during Earth Day, and we wanted to talk about parks, interacting with nature, and making sure we understand what it takes to truly protect Mother Earth. So before we get into it, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. It's also super important to mention that Indigenous traditional knowledge is historically central to understanding the way the world and the environment works and interacts. Um, Indigenous traditional knowledge has been the original, you know, quote-unquote, planet protector since the beginning of time and has proven very effective in holistically understanding the Earth. Yet efforts by government for environmental protection and conservation almost always ignore Indigenous traditional knowledge and decision-making for the planet, which is very unjust. Now, this is a topic that we would love to go further into detail on, but we feel it would be best to have a guest speaker on the show who knows about Indigenous traditional knowledge and conservation, um, just to kind of talk more about that as it's not entirely our space to do so. So speaking of conservation, I feel like we're always hearing the terms conservation and protection and preservation and using them to talk about things like natural resources or parks or just the environment in general. But I think before we get into the grit of this episode, we should clearly define the terms and identify, you know, the differences between them so that we all kind of have a better understanding um, going into this content. Um, So conservation and preservation are pretty closely linked. Both involve a degree of protection, but the key difference is the ways in which that protection is carried out. So conservation is typically associated with the protection of natural resources, while preservation is associated with the protection of buildings, objects, and landscapes. Put simply, conservation seeks the proper use of nature, while preservation seeks the protection of nature from use. Does that make sense? That was great, yeah. That makes so much sense. Okay. Yeah. Because at first, I was like, when I was first researching this, I, I was like, they literally mean the same thing, but they don't. <laughs> no, yeah, Taylor, that was actually fantastic. I took a like a course on conservation and preservation planning, and that's literally like exactly how they played it out. I just didn't want to give you that because I didn't know if it was too planning centric, but I'm really happy <laughs> to see they're related. But that's that's like spot on, amazing. Okay, they really are, and like it leads into like ideologies or approaches when it comes to environmental protection like whether someone's coming from a conservation background or a preservation like the actions can look completely different and the outcomes mm-hmm. too so like you did a really great job highlighting that oh great and Makes i sense. like that because it touches on like how i was like it's there's like different vibes that come from the tones of both researches that i was like getting mm-hmm. so i we can put that in the spot and how i was how you guys have like spotlight and stuff so that's great awesome i think you did a good job yeah i thought it was really important like because it's it's a really fine difference it's just like the ways mm-hmm. in which the protection is carried out and i thought that was really cool because it's like mm-hmm. such a 
minuscule difference, but it's so significant and in the way you want to think about it exactly at first because like the words are like often like interchanged, right? That's right. So I like this definition you put. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it plays into what we talked about last episode um, on you know the history of the environmental movement um, and how it was pretty much Rachel Carson's book called Silent Spring that um, began the environmental movement, which also sparked the creation of a whole bunch of both conservation and preservation organizations. Um, conservation is sought to regulate human use, while preservation is sought to eliminate human impact altogether. So again, that kind of goes back into the, you know, the very fine differences between them. For example, though conservation groups like the World Wildlife Fund are created to protect large spaces for wildlife conservation, um, preservation groups like the Sierra Club use their voice to work with politicians to influence and improve future environmental policy. So you can see um, where it kind of differentiates in that sense. Um, where conservation organizations, they, they're they very much you know protecting what we have now from human use and then um, preservation groups are working it for are working to um, preserve for the future. Now both conservationists and preservationists are extremely important to sustainability and climate change mitigation and as Taylor mentioned a few minutes ago it's very important to keep both in mind when exploring natural parks and green spaces. Here in Canada we are no stranger to understanding the great nature that surrounds us. However we may not know how areas are selected to be preserved or conserved. Like anything, there are projected data-driven goals to aid with this selection. So, for example, Canada has an international commitment to protecting 17% of terrestrial and 10% of marine territory by 2020. And each province has a different way of deciding how to do this. So, in Ontario, it's under the Provincial Parks and Conservation Reserves Act of 2006. Um, In Ontario, protected areas are defined to protect natural and cultural features, maintain biodiversity, and provide opportunities for compatible recreation. So according to the Government of Ontario website, these areas um, just may contain old growth forests, lakes, rivers, wetlands, archaeological sites, or habitat for rare or of endangered plants and animals. So these areas are selected based on their ecological, geological, and cultural heritage features. This framework is similar for conservation sites and apparently is going to be a framework to represent Ontario's aquatic ecosystem. Uh, At the time of research, there seemed to be no framework for our aquatic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a little suspicious mm-hmm. <laughs> as we why we don't when we have a lot of um aquatic life surrounding Canada but anyways <laughs> uh just put that out there <laughs> um so remember those data points I mentioned uh in order to be a protected area to be chosen targets must represent land-based ecosystems geological features and cultural heritage so those three points must be build uh, in order to even be in the selection process. So I just want to quickly compare this to the plan that's in Nova Scotia, which is titled the uh, Our Parks and Protected Areas, a plan for Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia proposed to use what they call the six R's for selecting sites for protection. So those are uh, one remote, which is large areas in a mostly natural state with few human impacts. The second is representatives, which are the examples of the full spectrum of Nova Scotia's natural landscapes. The third is rich, being productive and diverse. So 
flourishing wildlife. The fourth is rare, meaning unique or rare landscapes, plants, or animals. Uh, then it's restoration, meaning areas that fill important land gaps but need time to restore from past use. And then lastly is reconnection, so the areas that provide important natural connections for plants and animals. So just like to tie this together, from these brief explanations alone, doing this research, I got the feeling that Ontario was looking for opportunities of compatible recreation, which seems like a ploy to profit um, out of like these spaces. And then Nova Scotia seemed to be putting the, like, the well-being of the environment and the ecosystems that rely on it at the forefront of these plants. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like an interesting observation because um, it's very similar to what Taylor you were just saying how both conservation and protection aim to like protect these spaces but they have very different priorities and I thought that these two plans kind of were good like examples mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. but yeah they really are that's a good point about plans yeah, yeah. I got so excited like planning yeah. <laughs> because that's actually a great analysis of plans because um like, for example, I wrote this thing once about Toronto versus Vancouver climate plans, like, back in the day, so not recent, but basically, like, <clears throat> the analysis kind of went along those same lines, whereas Toronto was more focused on community engagement, and they didn't really have any set enviro set goals or, like, climate targets, whereas Vancouver, like, completely ignored um, their vulnerable populations and all, all this stuff. And they, but we're really like on the science side of like, we're going to meet this target and protect this area of the shoreline to not recede by this much. So, um, yeah, that, like, that's really cool that you're able to <laughs> pull that apart. I should switch, uh, research areas. Yeah. <laughs> you should become a planner. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, man. A waste The stress planner. that would cause you right now, Taylor. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I, I would have a breakdown, yeah. but... Maybe it's what I need. Maybe it's the universe shifting me in that direction. Ooh. Anyways. Don't think too hard um, about that. I know. I can't. Look how my face is turning just from thinking. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know, Danielle, if you want to go right into your question now, too. Yeah. So we didn't have to ask this, but when I was reading your section, of course, I saw plans and I was freaking out. <laughs> um, and like, I was just curious what you thought based off your research and what everyone thinks. Like, Based on the ideas of what you've heard of conservation planning, what do you guys think is missing in this process? Because, like, there are a lot of missing pieces in the planning process. And I was just curious, like, based off what Taylor's describing, like, how, you know, Ontario's focusing on this and Nova Scotia's focusing on this, like, like what do you guys think are, is missing? Like, I'm just curious based off, like, your ideas of being so environmentally conscious and engaged in this, like, through your research, so. I mean... Taylor's going to go into maps or marine protected areas or MPAs later. So like, but that's the area that I'm like, oof, it it needs the most work in terms of conservation. But honestly, my biggest question when it comes to like a lot of when like these lines are drawn of what is a provincial park, what's a national park and all of that. And how do we define these different areas is how do we know that the area we're drawing is is big enough right. you know um a lot of the things that we've discussed um in my conservation courses and my wildlife rehabilitation courses is that it's just so hard to know and because you know creatures 
most a lot of the creatures that we think about when we think of conservation aren't sessile they move they you know they migrate they go to different areas so how do you make sure that when you're conserving an area whether it's for the actual like plants and like the soil ecosystem or for species within it how do you make sure that it's the size that they need in order to be the most successful and I think I wonder is there a connection from like parks or conserved or preserved areas in the past where lines were drawn without full information like is there a process where we review that is there a process to like double check on like biodiversity rates and species like success rates and there probably is but like I don't know (laughs) does that make sense yeah Mm-hmm. totally I just I don't know I think um just with my very limited knowledge of just like after this research and then just um seeing like how some decisions have been made over the course of this past year I think that at least in Ontario because we're so like bubbled into southern Ontario and if you're in southern Ontario you don't really think about the rest of Ontario unless you Mm -hmm. have like Mm. family up north or you are like the outdoorsy type and so then when you're in southern Ontario get kind of sucked into like the like the I don't want to call it like the like the USA North American like yeah the GTA bubble like I think we all have an idea of what I'm talking about if you're from the GTA so I think we just become like so concerned on this section we don't really think about the rest of it and we just think about the parks around us and we go oh like it's they're doing pretty well because we hear all this nature and we go hiking and we don't really give it second thought a second thought but I think with like decision making process like hooking just said Kendra like there has to be like a review process as well because what if the like the nature isn't they're migrating because of how we are living in southern Ontario Mm -hmm. you know I don't know I just I don't know I think there definitely has to be a review process but it also can't just be like old forests as like one of those earlier examples because is that actually providing the right habitat for like species that that to excel in those conditions or are we just like picking like convenient spots for humans Mm -hmm. to like preserve these parks that is which is like so on it I like that makes me think of two things the first one is in one of my environmental education courses we talked about conservation and preservation in the environment and how when we think of those two terms we think about like you said old growth forest somewhere far away from us but we also don't think about the word environment or the word ecosystem it doesn't have to be some like your home could be considered an ecosystem your backyard is an ecosystem cities Mm -hmm. are an environment and so like how do you practice conservation and protection of uh, species that have now adapted to large infrastructure and their prime residence is in cities or in homes we had this one entire lesson just about this like spider i don't i'm sorry if people are triggered by images or thoughts of spiders um warning Um, but that there's a house spider that, you know, has adapted and now they can only be found in homes. I don't know how Mm -hmm. that happened, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah. And so how do you conserve and protect a species when we only think about conservation as like, you know, far from us when now because of human activity, there's creatures out there and plants and, and insects and microbes that have adapted and they rely on what we've built, uh, for their homes. And then the second is like yeah 
ice rock where conservation areas is it remote areas that we can't necessarily extract things from like a mountain or or ice like a like up north or is it is it places that have are biodiversity rich and need to be protected I also I gotta say this doesn't have to be kept in it's just a thought because as you're thinking like it's like up north like it's so far away and I was thinking how like <laughs> the terms that I was seeing on like Ontario's website was like the far north I'm like it's not that far away no. <laughs> and so that terminology makes you seem like so out of mind like it's, yeah. oh, it's up like way up north like we can't even get there it's so also, isolated it's not a problem it dehumanizes like, it too big time yeah like, and I'm like why are we using this it, remo- I don't know, it like, makes it remote and that's the yeah. main problem. Like that's why they don't have as many opportunities for for anything. Like it's it's not right. Like, and I'll it's touch like on it makes that, it but... almost like the decision making like on the back burner because it's just so right. out of the way from like the southern Ontario. Like where like the hub, if you will, of like decisions yeah. are made, and not even considering the people up north. I just thought I was so annoyed when I saw that term. I'm like this doesn't this doesn't feel right. But <laughs> right. I don't know anything. This is like just my first time really researching these topics. So it's just vague, Anyways. especially because yeah. when people from the GTA say, "Oh, I'm from like or from Northern Ontario," um, sometimes it refers to like Muskoka, which is two and yeah. a half, three <laughs> hours from Toronto. Never mind the fact that there are some people that live a twenty-six hour drive north from Ontario, like. <laughs> That's not even so. Like our terms and how we understand our own province can be so Toronto focused that I had a, I had a manager once who laughed at me because so she worked she uh, commuted from Barrie every day. I'm like, oh, like I'm gonna go camping with my friends like an hour north from Barrie. I'm like, it's so far away. <laughs> She's like, Taylor, stop talking. Oh my god, <laughs> that's actually funny. She's like, it's not far. I commute from there like every day. I'm like, oh my gosh, the 400. You need to sit in that track. <laughs> this was three years ago, so I wasn't the educated flower that I am today. Okay, <laughs> right. We but forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. If it's okay, I'd love to move on to one of my favorite conservation topics. Mm-hmm. If that's okay. Okay, cool. So, um, the next thing that we kind of wanted to address is who and what is conserved. Is conserved. So Taylor did a really great job breaking down like what is a conservation area? What do they look like? And how is that decided? Um, But I wanted to kind of go into that a little bit further as well. So as was mentioned earlier, uh, protected and conserved areas, so that's sometimes referred to as PCAs, including um, indigenous and community conserved areas, and those are ICCAs, are one of the most effective tools for preventing the loss of natural ecosystems and species, as well as in hoping to achieve long-term sustainable de- uh, sustainable development goals. Um, so uh, PCAs currently cover a little bit over 15% of the Earth's terrestrial surface, which includes inland water, so that would be rivers, lakes, ponds, and then 7.3% of global oceans, which when you think about how big oceans are, 7% is, that's, that's small, that's very small. Um, however, Over 50 million hectares of protected areas worldwide have lost legal protection since 1900 as a result of protected area downgrading um, and downsizing. So that that's also something that we need to consider when talking about conservation and preservation is 
keeping an eye on when we're making gains. So like when we see that there's a new designated area uh, that's being protected, have we lost any too? Um, so that's something to consider. And something that can motivate or severely influence that is the charismatic megafauna, which is probably my favorite term ever because it sounds like a dinosaur or <laughs> it sounds so intense, but it's it's not. So, okay, anyway, I'll get into it. So when we talk about cons conservation and protection, um, I'm sure very specific images come to your mind, such as, or like campaigns even, like save the rainforest or save the coral reefs. Um, those are examples of two ex extremely valuable and vulnerable ecosystems that do in fact require conservation and protection. However, have you also heard of campaigns like Save the Pandas or Save the Elephants? I'm sure we're all nodding yeah. our head. Yeah. <laughs> so these are campaign these campaigns are examples of charismatic megafauna and it's a tactic used in many conservation efforts. So the term charismatic megafauna was made in the 80s and basically biologists, environmentalists and conservationists were trying to save and protect endangered species and they found that they could use the quote unquote like cuteness factor from certain species in order to appeal to the general public in order to gain support for their cause. So it's pretty creative. Um, it's it's like if you saw, if someone said save a puppy, you'd be like, oh my God, we have to save that puppy. You know, like I don't want to, I don't want to be the asshole that's like, oh, don't save the puppy. So like it works because if you aren't for saving the pandas, like you look like a bad dude. It works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically um, working off of that, another term that's associated with charismatic megafauna is flagship species, which is... I don't think it's something as commonly known, but basically it's a species chosen to raise support for the conservation or protection of biodiversity for an entire ecosystem by applying the social context to a particular species. So it's like if you were talking about um, the fires in Australia, um, mm. the flagship species potentially could be save the koalas from these fires. And so you have your flagship species that's like, this is what we're working on, but it's gonna, as an umbrella, help the entire Australian forest right now. But we're gonna market this as save the koala, save the kangaroo. So that would be an example of that. Basically, people tend to love these species so much, they're more likely to listen to conservation messages associated with their well-being. Um, and additionally, people might be more likely to donate to causes that support these species. So those are the two big terms for the day, at least from me, charismatic, charismatic megafauna and flagship species. Um, so the fact that these species can stimulate interest in conservation and inspire direct funding to these conservation efforts make them really incredibly important when talking about conservation successes. However, there still are a lot of criticisms associated with like using this tactic. The first one being that it's argued that the conservation impacts from these flagship species or charismatic megafauna um, is expected to extend to other species that share the ecosystem with those like, I don't know, <laughs> mammal celebrities, because they often tend to be mammals. Sometimes it's save the whales, but honestly, again, this is an example of marine does get overlooked a fair bit. Sometimes, oh, save the dolphins. That's, that's a good one, but you don't hear save the sharks. So it's assumed that if we're in favor of supporting this one really cute species, that the conservation efforts will extend to the others that share the ecosystem with them. But there's there's the opposite debate where some scholars believe that there's not actually enough scientific evidence proving that this umbrella effect 
can effectively maintain the protection of biodiversity. So like, will efforts to, you know, for example, save the dolphins really only be directed to parts of the ecosystem that directly benefit dolphins rather than efforts that will protect the entire ecosystem that a dolphin lives in if that makes does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah. totally okay yeah kind so that's one of the first concerns um also it's also crucial to note that sometimes these campaigns that focus on the popular species can result in overlooking of smaller less attractive but vitally important species for example often reptiles small mammals bird species and bugs are largely neglected in public uh, conservation campaigns, which also means that people don't have the opportunity to learn about how vital they are to the ecosystem. Like, if I said protect your benthic systems and your benthic creatures, I don't think people would know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) And they won't understand how vital, like, that layer of an aquatic ecosystem is in maintaining the entire system because it's just not talked about. So people don't know that they need to be worried about that. So anyways, this is just a Conservation 101 episode. There's obviously a lot more to discuss and a lot more nuances that you could look into. Um, I mean, to be fair, people do spend years educating themselves on these topics. So we're not, I'm not going to say I know everything or that I'm missing, I'm not missing stuff because I definitely am. But I thought this would be something really fun to bring up and discuss at our level because I don't know, it's really cool. It's, I think it's fun. I think that's super cool. And the first thing that came to my mind, Kendra, as you were educating uh, me personally, was the Save the Bees campaign. Because that was such a battle. Like, I remember people were like, oh, what do we care about the bees and blah, blah, blah. And we would explain the importance. And I noticed a shift when it's so funny. It's exactly what you said when we started to market bees as cute. Like, be happy on shirts with a little bee, mm. which like I'm not against them. I think they're the cutest thing. I think it's great. But I, I did notice that shift in like, um, you know, the movement kind of blowing up more per se um, when there was that exactly the, the term you're saying. So that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that to light because that's something I didn't know about, yeah. but it's very clear in almost every conservation campaign. So Wow. It's also, actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because I forgot about that example, but that's the prime example of why this can go wrong because Save the Bees, incredibly important. We all saw the bee movie. We understand. We know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a lot of the education around bees is misleading, and a lot of the images that people associate with bees are actually examples of invasive species. Yes. <laughs> um, and so when people are saving the bees or th- talking about it, um, there's... It, they're still missing information sometimes about like you know which bees are super helpful in an ecosystem and some are harmful but I'm not a bee specialist I worked with someone who is and that was really really cool I learned a lot um but yeah bees are complex yes and the one thing I did learn when I was doing more research about this because I found that like whole switch of a campaign so interesting was that Like, of course, saving the bees is important and like donating and doing everything you can. But it was like, stop killing like certain other species in order to protect these specific species. And the ones they were referring to are usually, you know, like little bugs that, you know, are like you you don't like exactly what you're saying. Like, we don't Mm -hmm. like certain animals or you know, so that's why I found that interesting because people were like, so like save the bees, which is great. But 
you know, are we still killing other things that would promote that because we don't like the way they look and we don't like the ideas of them? So that's really interesting. I'm glad you explained that. I had some questions, but I don't know if we want to move on. But it was just like, have you heard of the terms before? Do you have anything associated with it? And did this, did anything shock you? I've never heard of these terms before, but I've also basically just summed this up as like, these campaigns are making these certain animals like the poster child mm. for these movements and then i've um i don't know over the years i'm kind of like an, uh, annoyed at that process only because after it does the initial like shock to the system it's like here's the harm that we're doing to this animal and sort of its other like relation like related animals in the ecosystem here's what we should do like this one-all solution right but then i just find it becomes like like a like a punchline almost after so much like the whole save the turtles with the straws thing like mm. just from that phrase everyone knows what i'm talking about but no one knows like well i'm gonna make a generalization i don't think we have much again like follow-up on like how that's been going now like are the turtles okay all of a sudden because we all just like stopped <laughs> using plastic straws on our daily commute and it just becomes like a joke instead of like more researching into like plastics in the ocean and microplastics mm-hmm. and you know unless that's like your your um primary interest area mm-hmm. so i think like these campaigns are good in like in first exposure to like yeah um younger generation you know when you're like in elementary and high school and you're just like oh my god and then you the, the, the puppy example made me cry i'm so sorry like no, because like I kind of laughed and then I got sad because like I just pictured like that like that that super sad song they have all those black yes. and white commercials like <laughs> yeah like I just imagine that after like every extreme disaster just like killing all these animals I'm like maybe we would have more stuff done like more solutions if we just had that exact marketing template you bring it but <laughs> you mentioned such a good po- I feel like I went hard on it you're right it it does it is a great tool to get people into the conservation discussion you're 100 mm-hmm. right because with like it is hard and like I'm like oh there's so much more information but like that's overwhelming you are right 100 it helps just get people started so mm-hmm. like I and gotta like, give how many props, people yeah. probably had no idea that there even was a plastic or a micropla- microplastics problem in the world right. before the whole campaign, right? And I didn't even know the the whole story about bees until, like, the bee campaign. Because mm-hmm. I just never gave them a thought. Because I always saw them around wherever I was. I'm like, oh, they're doing They're fun. around. They're good, yeah. <laughs> and then I realized... <laughs> and then I saw the, 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 like, the documentaries and I'm like, ooh, this is a very, very terrible predicament that we are all in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to follow up and say the same thing. Like, I had heard of some of the terms you're talking about, um, mostly just about, like, PCAs and the SDGs and... Um, but charismatic megafauna that word when you said it in our first meeting i was like wait wait a damn minute <laughs> like, what is that i love um, it it's but a I think fancy concept, word yeah but term. i think the concepts are super cool super important a little bit of a shock factor um with you know how little um like when you said about the 7.3 percent of the global oceans are covered um by the pcas i was like that that can't be right. Like, that number is way too low. Um, you know, it's not yeah. <laughs> not a good number. 
Yeah, I'm in, like I'm pretty confident in my source for that. I'm also no, like, I know, I believe you I in your research it, abilities. I'm just very unimpressed with the world with, with yeah, that one. <laughs> when I saw that, though, I was like, uh... <laughs> it makes sense though, because when I was watching the Chasing Coral movie, like so a good. few years ago, and then they, and I think it was like Project Blue as well, mm. where they talked about like how they they made like the blue zones and then certain protected areas of ocean in like around Australia and then right like following months of like it all being confirmed to be like a safe space and yada yada there was a new election and then the new government just like completely invalidated that and brought back the the restrictions so those areas were no longer safe so it totally makes sense that such a small amount of like the global ocean has been protected because people are just like doing like two steps forward one step back mm-hmm. kind of, at least from like those examples that i've seen so even though it's just like it's such a surprisingly small number like you said but i did just double check sense. so that source did come from the wwf so i like yeah i was we trust I, it <laughs> i trust it i am scared by it people got goals though we got goals we're working towards to try and change that but <laughs> <laughs> I'll see it when I believe it. Should we? Oh no, other way around. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> Guys, my brain hurts. Oh no. Okay. Well, talking about uh, marine conservation, which is also coined as marine resources conservation, it is the protection and preservation of ecosystems in oceans and seas. So it focuses on limiting human-caused damage and restoring damaged marine ecosystems. So I mentioned earlier that Canada has a commitment to protecting 10% of its waters by 2020. So, and then according to the Government of Canada website, Canada surpassed that commitment and protected 14% of its marine and coastal areas. So that's some sprinkle of good news in this conversation of despair that we are protecting the earth enough. (laughs) Um, So currently there are 14 MPAs, which are marine protected areas across Canada, which makes up for about 6% of Canada's marine and coastal areas. So because this would be a better visual, we we will link the information of this map showing the different MPAs around Canada because I think it's really important to see it and not just hear us talk about it because then you get the full impact of what's going on and and where. So um, on the other side of the coin, terrestrial areas include land and fresh water. So Canada had a goal to protect 17% of its terrestrial areas and it did not seem to meet that target. Uh, But the federal government announced a new plan back in November 2019 to create uh, new protected areas and species at risk. So that was marketed as the biggest nature investment in Canadian history. It was like several billion dollars, which uh, seemed like a pretty big shock to announce when they missed their goal by so much. Um, So anyway, but this move to protect species and land was accepted by both the Liberal and NDP parties back during the federal election. And they even stated goals of protecting up to 25% of the oceans, land, and fresh water by 2025, and then hitting 30% by 2030. So um, just from my research, it seems that there are five key priorities that should be reflected in uh, in these actions to make sure that we can actually hit our numbers moving forward. 
So the first would be adopt and achieve ambitious protected area targets. Done. Uh, commit to indigenous-led conservation and stewardship of protected areas. Probably not done, but definitely should be done, as we mentioned in the very beginning of this episode. Um, ensure protected areas are planned and managed for ecological integrity. Tackle biodiversity loss and climate change as deeply connected environmental crisis. And then scale up conservation investments for long-term success. So I think those are great points that every project going forward in preservation and conservation should have those in mind, no matter the actual like uh, project plan for criteria selection. I think those like should be like the long-term goal metrics but so one last thing I want to say I just want to reiterate my observation (laughs) (laughs) because I think it's important um but like from observing the different tones reflected in the writing between marine conservation and terrestrial conversation uh okay so actually it contradicts what Kendra said so maybe this actually can stir up a a fun debate but yeah, because you said that you find that terrestrial has more of the attention, but I found that there was more of an understanding to protect marine life um, because it's like more of like a, a like a connected system that people can like understand how connected the ocean is. But no one that's from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like people understand how connected the terrestrial is hmm. because it seems like that like terrestrial is an opportunity to bring in revenue via having humans immerse themselves Mm -hmm. in nature and um but the ocean is like a way of life that we all know kind of stirs the earth but terrestrial we see it as just like a destination we can go we don't see it as like a secluded area that is like reliant at least that's just my observation based on this okay so i find that kendra i mean because (laughs) i was i yeah i feel like i kind of agree with kendra's research on that i feel like Mm -hmm. people it's the opposite like no one really thinks of the ocean like that and and the marine species like that because i was gonna say because it's so like unexplored and people are so hesitant to go explore it because of Uh you know type of fear of the unknown um so it kind Mm -hmm. of just gets you know pushed to the side and i feel like since we can see everything happening with the terrestrial ecosystems right. and all those species, that's more prevalent in the front of our mind. And that's why we think of it more and we explore it more because it's a little bit more disposable at our fingertips. But I don't know. Let's my, hear the arguments. I don't know. I'm confused now. <laughs> my perspective kind of still remains the same, which is people might be able to understand the connectivity, the connectiveness of marine ecosystems easier than terrestrial. I'll agree with that. But that doesn't mean that they're protected more so than terrestrial like they might have the intention it sounds as though you're saying that there's more of an understanding to protect marine life that could also be more recently that doesn't mean that it has been or is like going to be on par i understand okay yeah Yeah, yeah. so then that's my only i i agree with that with with what you're saying i wasn't saying like um that i think marine has always been like the forefront of the attention i just meant like from like the research that i was finding it was seemed to be more easier like today to get involved in marine conservation than terrestrial conservation okay there was just like more projects Mm -hmm. and like more initiative yeah like marine life rather than terrestrial but so that's what I was trying to say. Like, I can agree with to, that. I feel like sorry. I've seen that too. Yeah. Did I say the opposite earlier? I thought it, it just marine life has been neglected from like in protection, like actual like measures. Because like in terms of regulations and policies and all of that kind of stuff, like 
they're very commercial based. Does that does that make sense? Like fisheries yeah. acts and all of those like mm-hmm. protection and conservation stuff, they still tend to be very market based and that it is more recent that like it's MPAs and stuff, but they're so minuscule. And that makes perfect you know I mean? sense considering like Ontario doesn't have the ecosystem framework on how to protect just you know. Yeah. So that makes sense that it's not like no one's taking like the actual like legal initiative like government wise. But it's also to, like seriously protect it. I think the reason why is because it's so hard. Because when you start mm-hmm. talking about marine protected areas, you have to think about where what is it called responsibility lies. So you have to think about um mm-hmm. like all of the different um, marine lines for what belongs to what country, what right. which country is responsible for which. And then also, if you're looking at international waters, there are international authorities that help with marine conservation and protection, but it's so tricky that it's, it, it's, it's not that it's non-existent. And I, I guess maybe if I said neglected, it sh- I shouldn't have said neglected. It's just, I feel like harder. <laughs> but no. there's, there's yeah. also a lot of really cool, like, like you're saying, projects for it, I see a ton more, like, trips or opportunities for people to go help, like, tag sharks in the wild or reef restoration stuff, but it's all individual, like, yeah, I don't know. Does that make Kendra, sense? Kendra, I, I agree with what you're saying, and also, Taylor, what you said about land being visually, like, mm-hmm. it's visual to people, that kind of stuck with me as soon as you said that, because mm-hmm. I, I see exactly what you mean by, like, okay, this land you know, 60 kilometers from your house that you've seen a a bunch of times is now going to be infringed upon, okay, by this development, or that's just an example. You can directly advocate for that because you have stepped on that land, you have experienced that land, like you feel a connection to it. Um, So I feel like people create this community, like advocation for it, if that makes sense. And I find, and then to point to Kendra, and then you can point to who governs that and who can be taking care of that directly. Whereas marine, it's, you know, so far and wide, exactly what you're saying, Kendra. Like, who, what belongs to who and who do you advocate to and how do you even start? I, I, I can see how it can be a little more daunting for someone who wants to advocate for that. So that's interesting. But I do agree. Like, there are, there are, def- there are more obvious efforts to try, like, to, to keep better care of yeah, those yeah. areas. Larger that's- scale. Yeah, I think it's also because yeah. people realize it's got to be large scale. Exactly. These creatures, mm-hmm. they travel such large distances, or a lot of them, not all of them, obviously. But so yeah. for you to effectively maintain the ecosystem, it's got to be big. Oh, not got to. I don't want to generalize. That's the problem. When it comes to talking about ecosystems or anything, you can't generalize because they're so different. I know. We're being so polite. We're like, but this makes sense and this makes sense and we need well, to protect this. I love it. <sighs> Yeah. I didn't mean for my thoughts to cause such distress. <laughs> no, it's good. That's what no, it's that, that actually really got my mind thinking. That's mm-hmm. actually super interesting. I can quickly do mine. Mine just really uh, kind of relates in terms of it being a land-based uh, form of like advocating for protection. Basically, what I'm going to talk about is the proposed highway in southern Ontario. And this is going to kind of spark connections to what everyone else has spoke about today, which I'm happy about. So, um, you know, everything's been very informative and has really helped base what I want to talk about now. So a local example of conservation on land, now that we can make that distinction, um, with chances of being destroyed, is uh, Dougie, so Ford's proposal of Highway uh, 413. (laughs) Dougie boy. (laughs) 
Oh, it's upsetting this one. So this Highway 413 is a new highway idea per se that would be a part of Ontario's 400 series highways. So Taylor mentioned the 400, we have the 404, the 401, a large interconnected series of highways that we have in Southern Ontario if you're not familiar. And um, yeah, I would say strictly to Southern Ontario. Um, this new highway would be going through Vaughan, Bolton, Caledon, Georgetown, Oakville, and paving through a thousand hectares, almost 2,500 acres of the protected green belt. So the GTA in Toronto do struggle with transportation, traffic, and we do have significant less highways than most major cities in North America, um, especially like Los Angeles. Um, but funny enough, this actually isn't a new proposal, which is kind of why I worded it funny to begin with. This is a re-proposal. Um, the original proposal was actually shot down because of the measly benefit it would provide. The, um, it was actually only about a minute saved in the journey, <laughs> which I think um, would be oh, like it's so insignificant. Lot. I don't know why he's oh petitioning for this. Yes, yeah, so I will gladly imagine... leave one minute earlier if he yeah, will so scrap like, this. Max two minutes. So if you have like a forty-minute commute, you're you're gonna be okay. I'm gonna be there in thirty-eight minutes. Thirty-nine minutes. Yeah, <laughs> that's so and absurd. To top it all off, in terms of an accessibility, um, it would be another toll highway similar to the four hundred seven. Why? Um, and this is very uncommon in Ontario and Canada for anyone who isn't familiar with um, how it functions here. We I would say I would have higher taxes and uh, therefore this is um, benefited through not having to pay through a highway. So this is very uncommon and becomes a huge accessibility thing in terms of transit. So this is just kind of a money grab. That's so... Um, <laughs> yeah. So I literally can't help but laugh at that. Like I... I, the the the, the dumbest mean, the dumbest plan I've ever heard of. It's actually clearly the ridiculous. people making these decisions don't sit in traffic for over an hour and don't realize that like this this isn't worth no. it. The problem and with like, the people making these decisions, it's that their sole focus is how much revenue they can create, yeah. right? But how and, I couldn't even see this making more revenue if it's not going to benefit. Like maybe it will in the beginning, and it'll people will be like, "Ooh, a new highlight! Let's go try it out!" Like even if it's yeah. cool, I don't care. But like. If it doesn't save you that much time and it's going to cut through all this greenbelt land, then yeah, why? For what? For what, Doug Ford? For what? Yeah. And do you think they would get a revenue from, like, all the increased, like, gas they would sell to fill up more cars <laughs> for this? Or they just have, like, better, <laughs> better deals with, like, oil and gas companies? Who, honestly, who knows? Just for some background on the Greenbelt, for anyone who's not familiar with it and why this is very harmful or shocking even, um, is that the Greenbelt is made up of over 2 million acres of land, um, protected land, which is actually one of the largest pieces of protected land in the world. And Doug Ford has continuously targeted the area and undermined the policies and laws we have surrounding it. Uh, a good example of this, just super quickly, are through MZOs, Ministerial Zoning Orders, which have been heavily enacted since um, he's been in power. For example, to fast-track development out of laws that normally would regulate this development. Anyways, but back to the highway. <laughs> um, some of the conservation implications would include contaminated groundwater, wetlands, forests, rivers, uh, specifically affecting over 53 river and stream crossings, which is insane. Uh, three months ago, the Ontario government actually created this public consultation session um, 
about expanding the green belt, which people were like, are you trying to distract from your consistent proposals to destroy it or what's going on here? Uh, my question is, what about transportation growth? As Ontarians have been pushing and begging for for years, we have uh, significant deficiencies in terms of trains, buses, subways, and where's that growth? Or highways that would much benefit less service areas, as we were discussing before, like currently the highway, quote-unquote, to Thunder Bay from the GTA is one lane in slow speed. So is he really Ontario's premier or is he GTA's premier? Um, I'll link the source for this because Environmental Defense has some good information on this highway. And there was actually a protest um, in the township where I work, just outside the office that I work in King. Um, and I'll, I'll link that too because that was super interesting because people clearly care about this and they're against it. So it's kind of concerning that he continues to act on it when the general population is not interested in this. Um, yeah, but I would love to hear what you guys think about is he Ontario's premier or GTA's premier? And also with Canada's and Ontario's arguably small population, I know GTA isn't considered small, but the rest of Ontario as a whole could be, and our heavily concentrated GTA growth, how do we plan outwards? Like how can we develop outside the GTA in more rural areas? Um, this kind of relates back to what Taylor was saying about how we neglect um northern Ontario if we should even call it that um, but yeah with off topic but with housing becoming so unaffordable is it actually necessary to migrate this growth to more affordable areas or like what do we do here right so it's it's a hard balance I think between uh, you know protecting our lands and also understanding how to make the province livable for everyone in an affordable way um, but yeah, the highway, we're gonna, we'll see what's going to happen there, but uh, people are against it, and Ford still I really is very so. interested. I really hope, yeah. like, in this decision at least, people have the power to sway policy, because that's just not something that should happen this highway. And, it, and the fact that it even got, you know, rejected before kind of shows right. that as well, so... Hopefully he learns his lesson this time, I don't know, but I think you do bring up a really good point in saying that, like... You know, is he the GTA's premier or Ontario's right. premier? Because everything mm -hmm. he makes decisions... Well, I'm not going to say everything because, again, generalizing, but yes, a but lot can... of the things he makes decisions right. about are only um, relative to and impacting the GTA. And maybe even a little bit further surrounding the GTA, but, like, think about, like, Northern Ontario, like, we keep using, or very out eastern, like, even out towards Kingston that way, like... Right. When has Ford ever talked about Kingston, like the KFLA area? Like, nothing, right? It's, I don't know. It's hard to, I get that GTA is the hub, but it's not very inclusive of, yeah, of the province. Yeah, and I think it really excludes the populations that do live outside the GTA. And then even within the GTA, like like I said, are you GTA's premier or whatever? Yeah. Like he's still like not benefiting the GTA <laughs> through these decisions. So I think that's also what's very upsetting. Yeah. It's like not only are you hyper-focused on this area, you're making bad environmental decisions that people are not happy with. I'm but, just yeah. I'm just confused. Maybe it's because I cut out because my computer is so terrible, but like what is the purpose of this? Like what does it do? Like, what is he arguing? Oh, Kendra. He but wants to generate more would, revenue. It would cut down one minute of commute time, which, as a professional commuter student, just 
chef's kiss. <laughs> That's what we need. That's what we've been asking for a while. I'm just kidding. I would rather sit in more traffic than have this highway ever created. Because well, wasn't, isn't there, a, I, I don't have the study off my head and I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of it somewhere, but it's just like, oh, we have traffic, so we'll build more roads, but it just makes more traffic. Someone's a, yes. Danielle, yeah. you know this. Can Kendra, you teach me? Yes. It just, yes. It just encourages more people to be on the roads on versus... The road. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was discussion. Proven. Pretty sure we had this discussion like early on. Yes. Too. And I think about it. I think about it every time I go like near um, Etobicoke, like where they've been expanding the highway for the past year and a bit. And every time I'm like, I wonder what it's going to be like sitting here one summer when I don't have AC in my car because my car is a dinosaur. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there <laughs> waiting for everyone to merge. Mm-hmm. But Kendra's right. Look- Roads yeah. have been proven if you build, like create more, expand more. It just creates more traffic. Like the solution here is that the GTA actually even wants. It's not even like it's a transportation. Public transportation. transportation. They want to be able to get on a bus, get on a train, get on a subway, any form. Yeah. They want walkability, and like it's just not being provided, and it's just it's crazy. I again, I don't know if y'all already said this. In which case, shut me the (laughs) fuck up. But like, wouldn't it? Isn't this like an opportunity? to make green jobs because I get it if he wants to do this because it would create a lot of construction jobs it can employ a lot of people in the GTA it can bring people Mm -hmm. into the GPA source of revenue but like if transportation is something that he's discussing like wouldn't this be a really cool opportunity to be like green jobs we can create the same amount of jobs because we're still building infrastructure but it will be like maybe a a subway or a train line or something like that does that make sense or is that not it makes a thousand percent correct yeah i feel like i'm missing something though because i feel like i feel like i the answer isn't so simple like i'm wondering why that's not happening like i feel like it's I'm not missing happening because it takes it takes away from um people buying cars people spending money on gas people right. contributing to the oil and gas right. industry right oh. and that's where all of the government's investments and everything is yeah. in it all lies in the oil and gas exactly taylor's right <laughs> they're going to regret that the minute affordable and more selection oh. of like EV. Oh, I just want to like because mm, mm. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was so quick story though. I found out that Jeeps, the Jeep Wranglers, coming out with, not, with a hybrid car. And if I had like a full time job and a spare seventy thousand dollars, you best be damned that would be the car I'd be. Oh, I could totally see I, that. Oh my god. And I'm like the minute. Everyone can afford an electric vehicle. I'm, I can't wait to see the look on the entire well, like, that's Ford like, government Well, that's like, Ford just came out with the um, electric SUV Mustang. And I'm, I'm yeah, like, I saw that. that. And it's, and it's then I 60K. That, I'm like, that's not even bad for an EV. The, yeah. No. I'm getting and that. There's a Volvo SUV car, too, that I'm like trying to pitch to my parents. Like, hey, the new family car. Because <laughs> it's not like... It's not like terribly outrageous pricing. Yeah. It's like becoming actually more approachable. Anyway, and actually, I, I'm going to just say this. I, I don't know if anyone of our mm-hmm. listeners are thinking of getting EVs, but there is a big government subsidy. Like you can get, I think, up to like five mm-hmm. or six K back on your car if you can show that you're getting an EV. So, so. you're saying it's 55 K. There you go. That's exactly. <laughs> go. That's more money than I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. But it's <laughs> just putting that out there i think i think this project is like trying to like be more in the past and like with all these like 
we have to think more futuristically on like how we want cities yeah. to be. And people want that. Like, it, look at the demand is clearly public, there. Yeah, the public consultation records show that people want a quick train to Quebec. You yeah. know, like a oh major yeah, city Quebec or even Kingston or even yeah. like a, a, a larger community in Muskoka. Like, it but just, it goes it's back crazy. to the, where the government's investment, where the government's right. investments lie. It's not in the green sector it is in the oil and gas sector and obviously they are going to advance their own interests and make their own money so they're not going to do what the people want even if it's smart disappointing because i love a train ride i love a good train so i I love love looking out the window it used to be so like meditative Mm -hmm. for me (laughs) when i would just take the train to school not so much on the way back i used to fall asleep and miss my stop but on the way there (laughs) It was really relaxing. I love a train. I do. They're so efficient. And you're just relaxed, like Taylor said. When I used to take the subway to York, (laughs) like as chaotic as the subway was, I would like just doze off against the window. (laughs) Like this is is peaceful. (laughs) This is bliss. This is my privilege talking. But when I lived abroad and I just took the trains (laughs) everywhere and it was like... A beautiful way to romanticize your life. Like, instead yes. of, like, having road rage and screaming while in traffic, you're, like, sipping your coffee that you made, and you're yeah. on the train maybe doing your readings. Like, I love With taking the subway to school. Ears. Was it 45 minutes? 100%. Uh-huh. But, like, I did my readings then instead of the night before like I should have. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's so true, though, because me and Taylor used to commute together, and we would be driving, like, probably two hours every day at least. To, just to get to school yeah. and I would be so frustrated because I'm like this is I wake up at like 5 a.m. just to get to class for 9 a.m. and I'm like there's so many better things I could be doing than sitting in traffic and wasting gas and <laughs> just being useless and the train provided that solution. Yeah see I didn't have that same problem as you guys because I live on they call it the Barry line for go train so oh, the yeah. new market station Aurora station is on the same line as the York University sub uh, station stop on the train. Must so, be nice. I'm not kidding. One we time had to take I a go train my... and then the subway. Yeah, I, if you're commuting honestly, from like outside, the drive so. from Newmarket to which is pretty much like Southern Vaughan. York is technically Southern Vaughan, I would argue. Um, would take me double the time than the train, and everyone just like was obsessed who lived like along my line about going to York and being able to save that much time in peace. Mm-hmm. So I wish I could I feel say like I was so obsessed many... about going to York. <laughs> Never in my life would I. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I feel that. I'm glad we all got to rant and rage about this. Um, Keep your eyes on social media, listeners, because um, we're going to be creating some sort of call to action, something that you can do to, you know, learn more, uh, act on it, speak out about it, because it is upsetting. (laughs) So keep your eyes on social media for that. Uh, We'll be updating. And like we keep saying, we are passionate and knowledgeable about these topics, but we are not experts, and we only know so much from our own experiences. And as I mentioned earlier, there is an entire discussion that needs to be had about Indigenous traditional knowledge and the lack of its inclusion within present-day conservation and preservation efforts. Um, We invite you to take the time to look into this further. It's an issue that demands collaboration and recognition. 
And if there was anything we talked about today that sparked your interest or got your research juices flowing, head over to our website and you can find the sources we each used in today's episode. And as always, thank you for joining us in our little corner of the internet. You can find us on our Instagram at Green and Gritty Podcast or on our Facebook at Green and Gritty. We would love to hear from all of our incredibly brilliant listeners. All right, so this is Green and Gritty signing out. Bye! Bye.